Entrepreneur MBA podcast purpose is to help existing business owners grow their companies past the $10 million in revenue per year benchmark. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I am co-founder of Financing Solutions. Over the last 25 years, I've built six companies in the $5 million to $25 million range. And I can't tell you how important it is for businesses to have a line of credit so they can make an investment in their business or even for just unexpected emergencies. I can't tell you how many times over those 25 years where I had a line of credit, I always made sure I had it. It was always challenging to keep it in place and to deal with the banks that are out there. And I made sure I had it. And a lot of times it kind of really helped me out. Uh, and my, both my business partner and I have a lot of experience in dealing with banks. And we thought there's got to be a better way. And so we came out with our own line of credit programs for small businesses that's easy to get in place. It's inexpensive when used and costs nothing to set up, making it a great cash backup plan. If you'd like to learn more about our line of credit program, please visit us at fscreditline.com. That's FS as in financing solutions, creditline.com. Or give us a call at 862-207-4118. If you apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file. And just remember, the time to set up a line of credit is when you don't need it, so that when you do need it, it's all ready to go. Today, I am very excited to be speaking with Michael Seaver from Seaver Consulting. Michael is an award-winning executive coach, leadership consultant, keynote speaker, and author. He's on a mission to unlock human potential to keep people uncover and live their life purpose and live a more meaningful and authentic life. His unique methodology has revolutionized how leaders can live authentically and how organizations engage employees. He offers no-nonsense strategies to help people find confidence in their life's narrative, uh, commonalities across generations working today, and ways to communicate with emotional intelligence. Michael's book, I Know, A Practical Guide for Awakening to What's Within and Finding Work-Life Integration, tells Michael's raw and authentic story, offers rich-based psychological truths, and is full of real-world client examples. And I'm very proud of myself because I read that whole thing without screwing it up. <laughs> so for me, that's an accomplishment. I have, I have dyslexia, so for me, that's an accomplishment. Um, I'd just like to welcome Michael for today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. You are wonderful, Stephen. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. you. Appreciate it. I got to be honest. Um, so today's topic, which is, you know, it's just great. Um, it's going to be a great, I did a, uh, a lecture. I, I was asked to be a, um, a uh, fill in uh, professor for a day at a, at a college near me. And I, I told the kids this, I said, you know, uh, you're going to hear about mistakes and it's so much better that I tell you about mistakes um, than I, than uh, that the things I did right. Uh, I mean, I told them the things I did right too, but, but, uh, you know, today's topic, the biggest life mistakes business owners make, um, boy, when I hear someone talking about this, um, I listen, I, when someone tell me the mistakes that they made, uh, I really, I I'll be in the back of my head. I'll store that one. Okay. And like, you know, I'm, I'm listen, I'm, 57 years old. I've been through this already, but, um, you know, but you really store the mistakes, don't you? Big time. 
Yeah. Big time. So, so the, the biggest mistakes business owners make, let's, we're going to get right into this topic. I'll add some value to it as well. Um, but, uh, you know, t- tell us a little bit about an intro. How did you kind of get into this area that you kind of, you know, thought that that was appropriate for us to talk about today? Yeah, thank you. It. I was raised in a very small town in an entrepreneurial family, uh, landscaping, law maintenance, and snow plowing business, which is actually still in existence today. It was started in 1953. So from age 12 until 24, I cut grass and shoveled dirt and plowed snow. But inside of working inside of that business that went from nothing to being a multi-million dollar business, I also felt uh, very uh, dictatorially controlled via my my family, right? And their kind of leadership style it was very command and control, like Jack Welch from GE back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And I, that always stuck in my brain. So when I got married in 2003, I moved to Phoenix, Arizona. And that was a really big transformation for me because I started to work in the hospitality industry and I started to layer in some different skills and, and meet some people with success and wealth and and big history, right? So celebrities, athletes, politicians. But then the really big things changed for me in a very positive way. In 2008, I went to the Thunderbird School of Global Management to get an MBA. And that's where things really transitioned. Because before, I had worked in the family business doing the entrepreneurial thing. I had worked in the hospitality industry at the Four Seasons. But then I I was introduced in 2008 to a coach who helped me to understand my life's actual purpose, right? To be a coach. It was something I had never, ever considered before. When, When she gave me a battery of assessments, asked me a series of questions, and helped me to connect the dots, I started to see that something organizational development or human resources or leadership or personal branding was actually more aligned with who I am and what I could do. So as a second year student, I was asked to coach first year students. And that's when I realized that that was my life's work because I completely got into a flow state, right? The rest of the world just turned off completely when I was coaching folks. And that's really important. So as I was doing that, I started to realize that, yeah, I needed to make coaching a part of my future, but I didn't know how. So I finished with the MBA and immediately went to a large healthcare system to be the director of talent sourcing. Right. So bringing a lot of talent, uh, nurses and different types of therapists and, and physicians into this healthcare system. And it was really valuable, but I was missing purpose. Right. I was missing this actual ability to be able to do something that was aligned with my life's mission. So after about two years of working in, in that business, I quit cold turkey to launch Seaver Consulting LLC. And at the beginning of that, I made a massive quantity of mistakes, like really I learned a, a ton of that. And I think through the process of watching my family's business be very command and control, and then watching businesses inside of specifically healthcare, but also secondarily inside uh, hospitality, I saw the value of delivery of service uh, in a way that you anticipate someone's needs, like a higher level of service that was more how I would call like empowering and enlightening people. So instead of command and control, I realized that there was more value in command, there was more value in empower and alignment. And so at, for the first 10 years of my business, right, because it's been 10 years now, I have iterated and changed a lot, but that has also produced a lot of success for me in very, very meaningful ways. And I've had thousands of hours in the arena, Stephen, where I've seen entrepreneurs or I've seen small businesses or I've seen very, very large businesses because my role you know, going into an organization is to not only be an executive coach, but I also do a lot of team training. I'm also able to do a lot of organizational culture change, uh, done a lot of speaking around the, the nation. So I have online courses and there's some other things that I've done. So I've seen a lot of iterations of people that are winning, but then also people that are at that point of transition. And I think that's the key piece is that I realized that my brand in terms of being a coach was to be the guy that could help at the moment of the mistake or at the moment of transition or at the moment of hardship or challenge, because 
I get very unemotional. I get very objective and I can get in there and solve the problem really quickly. So I think for the last 10 years, that's kind of where my brand has been built is been able to see where the problems are and fix them very rapidly and get the business or the person going in a far better direction. Yeah. Well, it's nice to be, it'd be better to be proactive, right? So that those things don't come up in the first place, right? Um, you know, there's a lot impacted, uh, what impacted, uh, what you just said, uh, uh, inside of what you just said. Um, you know, the, the first thing that I noticed is, and I, I'm, I'll try to articulate this two ways. Um, I had a business coach for 10 years and, and one of the things that she started coaching on was, uh, was, uh, she called it the contractor business school. And, but she recognized this 15 years ago that, um, businesses that weren't the most professional of businesses, really the business owners really struggled with how to run the company outside of themselves. Right. And so let, let me, and uh, let me caveat. It's not just those type of businesses. Everybody who starts a business, I don't care. An MBA t- teaches you nothing about learning how to run a small business. Okay. When I say small business, I would say anything under $25 million. Okay. So we're not talking like a million dollars less. Yes. That's definitely a small business, but you know, $25 million in yearly revenue or less, you're still a small business. All right. And, and so, you know, first thing you need to do, first thing that happens is you learn how to make money. Okay. And then the next thing that happens is you learn, okay, how do I get other people to make me money? All right. And that transition, if you're lucky enough to find a way to make money, that transition from that a transition from uh, from uh, you doing all the work to other people doing the work is rough, isn't it? I totally agree. It is very difficult for people to do that, right? Because it's you go from having a high intellectual quotient to as you're scaling your business, you need to have a high emotional quotient, right? High EQ. Yeah, yeah. And most people can't make that transition because it's a different development of soft skills that don't come from something you read in a book. Yeah, and it's uh, it was the hardest thing for me to adjust to. That's one of the reason why I brought on a coach because I felt I felt terrible how I was treating my staff. I just felt terrible, and you know, um, I, I mentioned earlier I've had six companies, and you know, I've I really worked hard on being a better manager, a better leader, running a better company, uh, having the right type of infrastructure in place. Um, and I'll tell you, it's painstakingly hard. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, listen, 25 years ago, coaching was unheard of. All right. It was unheard of. Okay. And then I would say about 20 years ago, it became a little bit more better known. And now it's, you know, it's a thing. Yeah. Right. I'm interested to see when it becomes something like a, a cheat, like a, a certification that comes from human resources or the CPA, if you're an accountant or a, you know, some sort of CFM or CFR when it comes to being in finance or similar. You know, I, it is a very, very popular business right now across the world. I'm hoping that at some point soon it becomes uh, as socially accepted as a CPA or as a CFM or some of those other things. I think we're getting there. Um, but I, I'm just glad that more and more people are accepting the support and help and guidance that can come from a coach. And and I don't know about yours, Stephen, but I look at coaching as just being that the coach believes that the client 
has all of the answers inside of him or herself. And it's just the job of the coach to pull those answers out. And that's really all it is. And so that's how I really structure my business is that one of the mistakes I think that that a person, especially at the top of a business makes often is, is that they think that they have all of the answers, but that's not entirely true, right? They have teams of individuals that can help them come up with solutions, especially if those teams are much, much closer to the client. So it's great to be able to have someone around you that you can vent to and have those conversations with, but who also challenges you through really insightful questions to help you see parts of your own journey or your staff or your client's journeys in ways that you might not have before. Good stuff. I agree. I do think we're there where people are, uh, the coaching is very, uh, very common. Uh, let, let's talk about today's topic. Uh, uh, biggest, and we're talking about the biggest life mistakes business owners make, not the biggest business mistakes business owners. And I think that is a, a, re- a really important differentiation because um, we'll, we'll, we'll get into some more thoughts on that. But tell me the number one biggest life mistake that a business owner makes. I see this so often, Stephen, is that our society terms it, you know, leadership brand. Some people call it personal brand. I just say that it's just a person's self-awareness, call it what you wish, is that people are genuinely not aware of what their own brand is. Like, what do they stand for? What's their life's mission? What are their core values? You know, what's their unique value proposition? What are their strengths or authority that they have in the marketplace? And so that's really what I get called for as an individual or executive coach is that I have to help people understand what is their personal brand, right? It's, it's why someone would trust them. It's why would they buy what it is that you're selling, whether it's your actual product or whether it is you as a leader, right? It's really that perception of who you are. So I think you just described that a little bit with regards to, you know, you said that you used to treat your staff one way, you realized that there needed to be an evolution. So the way that I help people overcome that mistake of not being self-aware is I put them through basically a three-part process. And the first part is that I have them collect five data sets about themselves, Number one is the DISC assessment, but you can use Myers-Briggs, you can use Predictive Index, you can use Emergenetics. There are many that are out there, but that is your overt communication style. It's how you behave in the world around you. And there's so much that can be gleaned about that from default emotions under stress to what is your conflict or negotiation style, or what are the things that you need to do when you feel high stress at the end of a long day. So number one, that first data piece is what's what's your communication preference? Number two is what motivates you, right? Unconsciously, we all have something that motivates us, but very few people actually know what that is. So I have an assessment that I utilize that helps people identify of 12 core motivators, which are their top four, because if they're spending time doing the things that motivate them, they're going to be more engaged. They're going to be more productive. They're actually going to be better leaders because then they start to do those things for the folks around them. Number three, core values, right? I see these as kind of being the lessons that they've learned over time. Sometimes they're the values that the family members have instilled in them from when they were young, but it's really what are those mistakes that you've made as life has progressed? What is it that you value most or what are those things that you rely on when you're making your life's most difficult choices, right? And we all need to do that. The fourth piece is uh, Q&A, kind of looking at the past, present, and the future of someone's life so that they're very clear about what shaped them into who they are, what's the baseline or benchmark of where they're at today, and what are the goals that they're striving for in the future? Now, the fifth thing is this idea of authority. Most people don't really thoroughly understand themselves well to know what their strengths are. And there are many assessments that are out in the marketplace today that can help somebody identify those things. But the real value in pulling those five data sets about yourself is to identify the patterns that exist across all five. Because if you see something pop up in multiple of those assessments, that's a key for you to understand that that's really important. So what I do is I take those patterns and then I help the person 
draft their personal mission, their top six core values, their unique value proposition, and a set of goals. So a lot of people, whether they're entrepreneurs or small business owners, they don't take the time to really thoroughly understand that. They see some sort of fad that's occurring in the marketplace and they try to jump on it without thoroughly knowing their own personal motivation or reason why that that means something to them, right? I, as a child and as a kid and as a teenager, I did not have a coach or a mentor. I identified a coach or a mentor at age 28 when I was getting the MBA. I have now made this choice in life to be a coach and a mentor to others, right? And it's deeply meaningful and it's produced a lot of success for me in my life. But I know that there's a lot of people that don't connect those dots to understand unextricably how it is that now they know why they're doing what they're doing and they can have even higher levels of success as a result. I'm so impressed that you could say those five things off so quickly so well without looking at your any notes i mean i'm looking on him on a video right now and he you know he just right off the top you can tell that you he that you live that life's mission right so to speak yeah. because you can really articulate it so well um i was expecting you to say uh, well the number one thing is not to screw up your family while you're building your business <laughs> you know i mean that was and and i'll tell you michael um everything you said is so true because when I look back at my path, um, you know, I was lucky enough to join uh, 22 years ago uh, the Entrepreneur Organization, and I've mentioned that before on my show. But um, you know, the Entrepreneur Organization EO is is for 15,000 members throughout the world, and um, you get put into a forum group, right? And they're all entrepreneurs, of course. And you, I've been with my entrepreneur forum group for uh, 20 years, uh, you know, amazing, uh, you know, majority of the guys and it's been just, and the whole thing about the entrepreneur organization is really about learning about yourself. And, you know, if you think about this as what you say is, well, this is all good, but I need to make money. I need to make profit. Well, let me tell you how you do that. If you know yourself well through the five steps that Michael just said, um, you then create the culture of your company based on those core values that you have. You therefore hire people into those core values. And guess what? They stay longer. They're happier. They're more productive because you like them. And so it, it all starts with, I think, what Michael's saying. And it's a, it is pretty much of a revelation, Mike. I don't think I would have you know, kind of really made that connection. Yeah, there's real value in it. And thank you for saying that, Stephen. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's hard because uh, our society has, has really guided us one way or the other, right? Uh, and for the last couple thousand years, we have really uh, fallen through kind of or towards idolatry, right? We've been very, very focused in on focusing on a particular deity or celebrity, athlete, politician, fill in the blank. And thankfully, the Harvard study of adult development came out and it's been there's TED talks about it. And what it has found over 85 plus years of, of tracking a, a class of graduates from Harvard in the late 1930s is, is that power, money, fame, success, as we traditionally know it in Western societies, doesn't lead to a long, happy and healthy life. Right. The key to a long, happy and healthy life, according to Harvard. Right. This is Harvard. They suggest that it's the quality of your close knit relationships. So why not establish your company and your organization based on the things that are near and dear to you most, whether it's your life's mission, whether it's your core values, because the best teams that I've worked with are the ones that have very diverse communication styles, but nearly identical core values, nearly identical. 
right? Not perfect, but close. Because if the underlying reason why you're doing something is roughly the same as your peers and your colleagues, you're going to get a massive quantity of stuff done. You're going to have a lot of new ideas flowing. You're going to be able to pivot and shift and iterate a lot faster than your competitors. And so diversity in communication is actually very empowering because people are going to see things through a very different lens. You're going to get better ideas. You're going to be able to iterate faster. So there's real significant value in establishing the culture based on you as the leader leading by example. You know, I think I think what really screws small business owners up is when you hear and you read about what big companies are doing. You know, I, I've always felt that the lessons that you learn from big companies, it just doesn't apply to small business, you know, and you really get screwed up. You say, oh, I remember, I remember my first business and uh, and I was like, oh, well, I got to build my brand. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I was like a, you know, like a $250,000 a year business. And I'm, you know, thinking about my brand, you know, it's this because I had read about it, about Pepsi and Coca-Cola and all these. And I mean, I'm, I'm using an exaggeration, but, you know, when you think about a f- small business, you know, it might be even worthwhile to think about the, the term family business, right? Because what does family mean to everybody, right? It means I'm going to be, you know, I'm watching your back. I'm with you. You know, I'm going to be truthful. I am um, going to be with you every step of the way. That's a good way to build a business, isn't it? Big time. It's so, yeah, I was working with um, essentially the manufacturer, the maker of the Zelle app, right? Where you're able to, to transfer money back and forth. Yeah. And so I was working with a, a set of their VPs and we instituted basically a, a process or a policy internally where the, these five VPs referred to themselves as brothers. And that was really intentional, right? They saw themselves as a brotherhood. And that's something that we need to focus a lot more on. And, and if you haven't followed this, folks listening, there's a there's a public relations entity called Edelman based in Europe, but now they're much more global. And every year they do something called the trust barometer. And so for the last decade, the trust in politicians, athletes, celebrities, NGOs, media, uh, it's been going downhill very rapidly. But the the trust in two different people, number one, a person like myself And number two, a person from my local community. Those two groups of individuals are rising rapidly. So you have the central hierarchical authority going down, right? We don't trust them as much, but we trust people like ourselves way, way more. And so in that context, creating the environment or the culture that makes people feel like they're part of a family, like a brotherhood or a sisterhood, that's the future. And the more that you can create those level of trust at a very deep level by openly expressing yourself or your life's journey or talking about your core values, it hits a home run every time. You know, um, this is going to be a weird uh, transition. Uh, so my, my, my wife recently died. Okay. And um, my uh, psychologist is unexpected. I was married for 26 years, happily married for 26 years. And my, um, so I have a grief psychologist that I work with and everybody should know I'm doing great. My whole family's doing so much better than you would have expected. And just, we just have to be very strong and resilient and accepting of change really well. But, um, but the, the psychologist said, you know, what are your expectations of, of me and uh, of, of herself? And I said, I want you to tell me the science behind grief. I want you to be the eyes and ears 
of what the science says, the research says, because I'm not going to get to it. And what you just said, Michael, the idea that you brought up the Harvard study and you, the, the, the fact that you brought up the trust study, I think that's what a really good coach does. You know, they, they introduce you to things like, we don't have time. I, as an entrepreneur, you know, I don't have the time to be looking at these other potential studies that are outside of my industry. And, you know, that stuff really makes a difference when I start thinking about, like, as soon as you said that about the trust study, and I know that this generation, you, know, you can you cannot be a superstar. Like, think about Lady Gaga, right? She was, she is somebody who said, I cannot lie to my audience, you know? Um, and so I think, you know, now I, I you know, I, I, if I hear that study and I say is, I cannot lie to my employees. I can. I have to be honest with them. I have to be upfront. I have to be genuine. I have to show them who I am. And I. And so I think that that's what really makes a good coach. Yeah. And thank you for saying that. And I'm. I'm sorry about your wife. Thank it's, you. There's uh, the last couple of years on Earth have been uh, incredibly gnarly. And so I, I really do want everybody listening to surround themselves with some sort of help, whether it's more of a life coach or a therapist, or whether it's an executive coach or something yes. to help with business, because operating at a very ethical level, great. Being able to, to help someone like a coach does great at helping uh, their clients listen at a, a deeper level, or they help them become greater at asking the right questions. Or I, like I said earlier, I believe that all coaching should be around or designed around that. We believe that our clients are whole and they have the answers already inside of them. And there's something to be said about grief right now. And there's a, a former president of the American Psychological Association named Martin Seligman, and he wrote a, a, a lot of work around the three P's, right? Permanence, pervasiveness, um, and personalization. And so when we're processing grief, if we can remember that the three P's, um, they're not necessarily true, right? They're just triggering us to go through kind of an awakening process that helps so much because I can't tell you how many organizations I've been in contact with the last six months where some member of the team has either been lost or has lost someone in their lives. Yeah. And so understanding the five stages of grief or understanding the three P's is wildly important. Yeah, I agree. By, for, by way to the, the uh, I don't know if it's worth saying it, the five P's uh, of grief, I'm sorry, not the five P's, the five stages of grief are now proven to be not correct. Oh, really? Yeah, they because they, people don't go through, sometimes they skip steps, sometimes uh. they do them in different order and stuff like that. So um, anyway, uh, it's, it's very interesting to hear that, what you're saying. Um, I, you know, I, I, I even, I'm reluctant to go farther into saying the biggest life mistakes business owners make, because when you dive into those five areas that you dive into, you really don't want to even go farther, do you? Well, yes and no. It, so that, that is of course how I kick off most of my coaching relationships is to go through that process. Like, don't get me wrong. So that's the heart of what it is that I do as an executive coach is get to the point of self-discovery because the way that they're going to show up in the world is then possibly going to change depending on their habits and the routines and the rituals, which brings up my point number two. And so you can riff with me a little bit here, Stephen, is that Dr. Joe Dispenza has done a lot of research to understand that the neocortex or the core, more conscious mind processes 2000 bits of information per second, but our uh, kind of unconscious mind processes 400 billion bits of information per second, right? So it's like the unconscious is like a supercomputer, but the consciousness is like the random access memory on your laptop. Now, the reason I bring that up is that 
the mistakes that I see people making after they have already defined what their brand or their core values are is that they unknowingly repeat their parents' behaviors. And I, and I mean that, and that sounds a little bit strange, but I really do mean it because what Dr. Bruce Lipton discovered is that from birth until age six, all humans are in something called the theta brainwave state. And what that means, it's kind of like being in a hypnotic trance is that everything that happens around you, you're absorbing straight into your unconscious and it becomes your operating model. It becomes the routines and the habits and the rituals that you live every day. So after I get a person through the first two or three meetings to define what their brand is, now I'm helping them to shed the, the social narratives or the acculturation that they were taught by their parents because every person unknowingly repeats those behaviors day after day. They don't even realize that they're doing it. So oftentimes I have to ask the client, tell me the origin story of that emotion. Tell me the origin story of that behavior, right? Tell me the origin story of why you do what you do. And then they start to realize it was something that their parents taught them sometimes 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And it gives them a chance to come up with a new habit, routine, or ritual that helps them help themselves and their teams at a very different level. So it's harder to do, but it's really important that they do it. Yeah, I, I would say um, I think we all focus on the negatives of what your parents did to you. Um, I would tell you that I'm a really, really, really good father and a good parent. And it comes really, really natural to me because my parents were so good. So talking about that 4 billion uh, learning unconscious, the things I do uh, as a parent um, comes easy because of my parents. And so it does tells you how important it is to be a great parent because you know, you're, you're gonna be pushing it forward. Right. So you better really work on. And I mean, the number one biggest thing I see with parents often is um, how how they don't think they're doing a good job. Right. And I find I'm, I find a, I keep my mouth shut a little bit with myself because, you know, I find that I'm doing a good job. And uh, so, you know, a lot of times when someone tells me that they're doing a bad job as a parent, I try to find the rainbow and what they are doing. Right. Because I, I feel bad that they feel that way. Um, so, uh, so the, so the next phase that you're saying after those five steps of self-discovery is going back to origins of understanding why it became that way. Yes. Um, what happens after that? Yeah. So if you've discovered yourself and you've went through a multi-month process of shedding those acculturated narratives, right? Those inherited narratives. Some people, some psychologists refer to them as generational curses, uh, right or wrong. That's just what they refer to them as. So then after you've worked really hard to shed those narratives, then the third piece or the third biggest mistake I would say that I keep running across is, is that the leader hasn't developed the emotional intelligence that you and I addressed earlier, Stephen, enough to be able to tailor their communication to the people around them. And what, what I mean by that is that whether you understand the DISC or the Myers-Briggs or Emergenetics or Predictive Index, every person has a default communication preference or style. And the fastest way to get to that deep level of trust with somebody is to understand what his or her style is and to slightly adjust your style to that person, right? Because as you do that, you start to get to deeper levels of awareness of, okay, I can see what it is that's going to trigger this person's fear. I can see what his or her conflict style is. I can see just by looking at their emails, you know, what kind of style they might be, how I should adjust my style. So if you want to deepen trust, first understand what a person's style might be and how you can communicate with them a little bit differently. 
But second, part of the trigger to being able to get them to deepen the relationship is to offer an increasing level of vulnerability about yourself. And I'm glad, Stephen, that you've been kind enough to share a little bit about your journey so far, because that's the exact right thing to do for everybody listening. Like, as long as you offer a vulnerability to someone on your team, they're going to reciprocate with a vulnerability of their own. And now that you know something about one another meaningfully at that level, the relationship will deepen, the trust will deepen, you'll be able to get through those harder things together. Now, the other piece about relationship building, I think that's really tough is consistency, right? So another mistake that I see leaders make is, is that they're not there consistently for their team members. And that is absolutely critical, right? It's an old Robert Cialdini from his book, Influence. Like it's the second law. It's called the law of consistency or the law of commitment. So that when we're developing and deepening those relationships, if we're tailoring communication, if we're offering vulnerability, if we're remaining consistent for a long period of time, the relationships are going to deepen. The culture of your organization is going to form. And now all of a sudden you're going to be perceived as a wonderful, wonderful leader. Right. So this is not a short process. It doesn't happen overnight. Right. Sometimes I'll be engaged for anywhere from six to nine months with an individual to help them through this because it takes a long time to do it. So I'm glad that I have the opportunities to be able to help people in that way, but I'm also glad I have forums like this to be able to let people plant the seed a little bit in their mind to say, hey, you know, you can choose how you want to navigate and go through this, but the best thing you can do is know yourself at a really, really deep level, understand why you are the way that you are and work to kind of shed those models and then really think about the depth of the relationships around you because that's not only what's going to lead to a long, happy and healthy life, but it's also the thing that's going to allow for your business to grow astronomically fast. Is there any studies that show the percentage of the population that is capable of making those major changes to transform their lives? Like, I mean, my guess would be like 97% of people are just so self unaware and they're so self-unaware that they're not going to make those adjustments. And then you have the 3% of the population that will really try to work on it. Uh, is there any statistics to, in, in, a, in a direct way, prove what I just said? If there, if there is, I'm not aware of it, Stephen. I mean, there likely is. I look at this, especially through my work, through a couple of different lenses, right? Jim Collins wrote in his book, Good to Great, and the McKinsey kind of uh, emulated the study in 2008 and 2015, that when it comes to an individual or a business setting some sort of change initiative, more than 70% of the time, the change initiative fails, right? There's a very, very high statistic of failure there. Now, when it comes to employee engagement, right? People who are genuinely liking their work, who genuinely are engaged by their job, the actual, the number in the year 2021 went down for the first time in more than a decade, right? There's only 35% of the American population that genuinely likes their work. And then the American Psychological Association also said that the level of stress in America was at 6.7 out of 10 in 2021, which is the highest it's ever been. Now, the reason I share those statistics with you is that in that environment, people are naturally going to default to the things that created psychological safety for them. And that means they're going to stay in the job they dislike. They're going to stay in the relationship they dislike. They're going to keep repeating the same habits because it's comfortable to them. So until something massive changes in their life, their behavior is not going to change. They need that trigger in order for them to be thrust into something oh. new, right? So if there's some statistic, I'll go do some homework and try to no, see if there is. No, you don't do that. But yeah, I was just curious. Uh, 
I, I, so, so let me ask you as you are, let me just don't put, you don't, don't, I'm not expecting real data here. So you, you coach a lot of people, right? And some of them get brought to you because the manager says, I want these five people coached or whatever, right? Out of, out of if you were to guess how many of them are going to be super responsive to the ideas that you need to understand yourself first, what percentage of those people do that and are capable of making the changes? If the person is brought to me by their boss or somewhat against their will, five, six, seven, eight percent will actually do the work. Wow. Very, very little. I can't tell you how many checks or Venmos I've had to send back to people, wow. right? Because, you know, they would start in the relationship and then all of a sudden, let's say two to three calls in, you could just see that it wasn't their game. Like they weren't ready for it. But if a person comes to me willingly, right, they yeah. will change. Oh yeah, that, that's good. That'll right? work. But, but for a very small percentage of people that are asked by a superior, some sort of a supervisor on their teams, the probability of me being able to talk with them about those issues is almost nothing. Some of them will latch on to it a little bit and then want to do something with it. But if I see that the person does not want to understand themselves at that level, I automatically go to the third phase and just start talking about communication. Right? Yeah. Because if, at least if I can help them with that, I know that I've made some sort of difference, but that's not going to solve their longer term issues. And do you find that those people tend to be problem employees? Like they might be great at delivering results, but they're, they're, they cause lots of problems in the office. They're prima donnas. You know, you know, I think we all get the picture. Do you find that those people who aren't willing to adjust and listen uh, are problems? Yes. Yeah, they, they certainly want to do it their way. Uh, and I don't know exactly why that is on a case-by-case -case basis, why somebody would do that. But yeah, they might be producing results, you know, in terms of finances to the bottom line for your organization. But the cost that they're producing on culture, on the other employees, on uh, time for their supervisors, that is worth far more than whatever they're delivering to the bottom line. Yeah, I've seen it. I've got I've definitely let people go who are my best producers because they're just wrecking the environment. So, you know, you, you learn that the longer you're in business, you're like, I'm not putting up with, you know, this, you know. Um, so you, the book that you have that came out, which was, um, uh, uh, I forget the name of it right now. Uh, I know. Yes. Right? Um, is there an I know too? So the... the I've been thinking about the the second book in the three-part series because when I decided to write this book, I thought about it through the lens of a three-part series. And so in the next 10 years, I'll draft number two, draft number three. But I know is uh, really meant to be uh, a call to independence and responsibility for anybody who reads it. So it's not that Stephen uh, knows about Michael or Michael knows about Stephen. It's that Michael knows about Michael and Stephen knows about Stephen. Right. So it, it's, I use uh, this overarching model that came from a guy named William Bridges, who was a brilliant psychologist and management professor, you know, years ago. Not the Bridges, Myers. Uh, the, the, so the, the Myers-Briggs is a Myers kind Briggs. of a, yeah. Is, it, is a, he one of the guys or no? No, different. Oh, and so okay. uh, William Bridges, he oh, was Bridges, a, sorry. Yeah, okay. yeah. No, he was a psychologist that taught people the three steps of change. So the first section of the book is designed around the Bridges model of transition about how do you end and let go the old version of yourself. And then the second section is designed to be an emotional neutral zone where you understand your life's work. You understand how to become more emotionally intelligent. You shift to this new identity for yourself. 
And then the third section is about new beginnings. How are you launching into this next version of you, which is how you share your brand with the marketplace, but also how do you design that really engaged team? And then how do you teach them to coach themselves and one another? So I entitled it, I know, because I wanted every person to stop looking to celebrities, athletes, and politicians for the answers and to trust in their own tuition that they had the answers inside themselves. So every reader could say, I know, because I believe honestly that they do. So what would the second book be called? <laughs> I thought about this and uh, I think the next one will be called I Belong. Uh-huh. And then the third one would be called I Am. And so wow. it's, a, it's a very, as society is going through its transformations right now, because there's going to be a lot more shortly that are really hard to digest and process so that. Humans were designed thousands of years ago to be very social, to be very part of a a group, right? We were designed to be great in groups of about 150. So I think we're moving to a time in human history where we're going to go back to those more close-knit groups. And so I want the second book to teach people how they can be a member of that small tribe, if you will. And then the third book, I Am, which I'll publish years down the road, uh, will help people to understand the totality of their experience, not just their human sense, but the unconscious, the soul, some of those other things. So I know is just a way to just get people who are disengaged at work, unhappy, somehow they feel unappreciated, to get them to that place of discovering their really authentic self, to move to clarity, right? To move to trusting, to move to knowing that they can discover meaning, right? Their personal version of joy or happiness, right? However they perceive it. Yeah. You know, a while ago, I, this is a long time ago, the, the, uh, I read an article about the owner of uh, meetup and what happened was a uh, uh, meetup became about during nine uh, 11. And he thought that the world was calling for people to get together. And so he came up with the idea, how can I make it so that people, you know, bond together with common interests. And that's how he came up with the, the idea for meetup. I think, you know, it's, I don't know, I'm 57 years old and it's, you know, the world just keeps getting more and more and more complicated. It, I don't think it was any different than when my parents would have said the same thing. Um, you know, I think I, I, I'm, I hope I'm impressed by the younger generation, um, but it, they're certainly getting a lot thrown at them. And, um, and I think entrepreneurs are too. I, you know, I think, you know, some of the stuff we're talking about here, um, you know, it just, it takes a while. It really, it takes, you have to make this big commitment. You start somewhere. And I think just knowing yourself, I think, I think you're Michael, you just hit the nail right on the head. Knowing yourself, you know, it's just the benefit outside of just being an entrepreneur and just a business owner, uh, of just making, I mean, I, I always say this, like people destroy their lives for the business. And I'm like, what are you doing this for? What are you doing this business for? If it's not to be happy, to have a great family, to to be able to make a difference. I mean, the thing that I've been really good at is balance. It's actually part of, I've had a mission statement since I was 21 years old and it's all about balance. Um, and my, you know, five things are number one, and we're not going to get too into it, but number one has always been about um, uh, health because I'm no good to anybody if my health isn't good. Okay. Number two is family and friends. Number three is work. Uh, number four is continuous learning. 
And number five is giving back. And I think it's been that balance that has allowed me to be more successful in the business world because I am far from burnt out. And and I'm a, and I'm a happy person too. Yeah, I, mean, I, I just, love that. Yeah, and I appreciate that. You know, that you know, looking at you and, and what it is that you're doing, right? To be able to do things to help you know different businesses, whether it's through the nonprofit wisdom website, right? There's many ways that you're helping for profit organizations, but also not for profit organizations. And so having those kind of core tenets of who you are and where it is that you're willing to distribute time, it matters immensely to your overall stress level, right? So as long as your body is not releasing too much cortisol, you can stay more balanced and feel quite a bit better. As long as you're having those areas that you can kind of ingratiate yourself to some sort of community, right? Dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin is released out of your brain and and given into your body. There's really significant value in that and being able to have that balance as we navigate life. And that's what I think younger generations have figured out, right? The, the silent generation, the baby boomer generation, and their kind of early Gen Xers, they were raised at a time where we learned uh, rote learning, right? We went to a classroom, we, we studied, we read a book, maybe we watched a video or listened to something, and we took a test at the end. But from the millennial ge- generation on, that's not how they're going to learn. They're going to learn experientially and what's referred to as associatively. So they don't go deep on topics. They see breadth across a variety of topics. So their their brains are literally hardwired to look at the world associatively, meaning that they're already kind of hardwired to seek self-esteem, to seek balance, to seek learning, to seek coaching and mentorship from other people. So very, very different generations, especially Gen Z, those born after 96, um, I have a 21-year-old stepdaughter, and so I'm watching it really occur in her. Uh, and so you know, I'm 41 years of age, Stephen, and, and she at age 21 has had more jobs in her life than I've had in my entire life. Yeah. Right. They really do life differently. And that's not good or bad. It's just that they learn through those experiences where previous generations learn through a book or through some sort of, you know, test or online means um, or in a classroom means. So it's really interesting to watch all these transformations occur in society and that there's good folks like yourself that are sharing a really strong message around balance so that I hope more people pick that up because it's so important. Yeah. I have a 21 year old too. Um, he goes to school at Boston university and, and he is so talented, but I, I would tell I would say this too. Um, he and I are very aligned. Uh, I would say this is more of a kudos to me. And, and that is um, there's not this huge generation gap between what he does and all these other things and how he learns and which is a, incredibly and i love the way you articulated it but you i took mike you you michael you articulated it but he uh so i you know we we always talk strategically and i you know we've always done it since he was in seventh grade you know and it's a big basis for our experience and he knows i love to learn he loves to learn i have a i have a 13 year old too and uh and he's starting to see uh you know that learning is fun you know, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's good stuff. I think it's important to, to I, most people say, oh, this generation or these generate, oh, they're, I don't feel that way. I feel like they're doing a lot of really good things. I think their idea behind uh, work, not being everything in your life is smart. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a, a wonderful book out of the center for creative leadership called retiring the generation gap. And it describes how the five different generations alive today, the 10 principles by which they're all the same. 
So the media will have you believing that the generations are different. And, and contextually, of course, they are because technology, globalization, things like that have occurred. But deep down inside, there are 10 principles by which all humans are the same, regardless of age or location on the planet. And so if we can get really focused in on the ways that we're all the same, right, the things that you and your 21-year-old son have in common, the world becomes a far better place. Well, and that's what we need across the board for everybody, not just our sons and daughters, but for our neighbors and our friends and people who disagree with us and all those things like that. So really good stuff. I'd like to thank so very much Michael Siever from Siever Consulting for coming on today's podcast. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend. And also subscribe on your favorite podcast podcasting app. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your business, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at fscreditline.com. Michael, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, it is michaelssiever.com. My middle name is Scott. So that's why there's a second S in there. So michaelssiever.com is a repository for all things helping you through that point of change. Or if you're interested in I Know, which Stephen referenced earlier, Google, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple, 40,000 retailers around the globe. Just search for Michael S. Siever and I Know. Great. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. And for those of you who are interested, I uh, tweet... Eh, sometimes daily, uh, about uh, lessons for business owners at S. Halasnik, which is my name, S-H-A-L-A-S-N-I-K. And I want to thank you all for listening. And today's like kind of reminder is you really, really got to know yourself. If you expect other people to, uh, to, to be treated in, at, let's say, at your, at, your, uh, at your business, if you expect them to treat them the right way, you have to know yourself first. And I think that's what Michael really talked to us about today, which I think is really important. I would run out and get that book. Um, I, I don't think I've ever said that. This is like my 80th podcast. Uh, I run out, get the book. I, I really like, I think, Michael, I think you're the type of coach that I would like. Um, I think it's obvious because uh, I, I like how you, you take real data and apply it to situations. And I think that's important in coaching. So I'm good. Everybody have a fantastic day. I'll be uh, on the next podcast and talking to great people like Michael again, I hope. Everybody have a fantastic day. Summer's coming. I think, you know, the COVID thing is, is on its way out. I've said that before, though. 